Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from both academia and industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. I would like to ask you first how would you like to define yourself for the audience who may be first time listening to you. Okay, uh, so my name is Jeff Shama. I'm currently a professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I joined recently a couple of months ago, in fact. Uh, and so define myself in terms of my uh, research interests and, and academic interests, it would be really feedback control. Mm-hmm. And I'm very passionate, in fact, about feedback control and its you know various manifestations. And in fact, if you look up feedbackcontrol.com, uh, I'm the uh, owner of that domain. I, I don't have anything on there yet. Uh, maybe I'll put a podcast or something, but uh, that's, that's feedback control. And uh, so then over the course of uh, in my research, I a few years ago got interested in multi-agent systems or related to robotics, multi-robot systems. And that uh, when you have many decision makers that led me to become interested in, in game theory and the interplay between control theory and game theory. So I guess it's give us a different case about the control design when it comes to from simulation to reality. What kind of something did you see about simulation to reality when it comes to designing the controller, for example? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a moving target and it's something of in the robotics community, as you know, is receiving a lot of attention of so-called mm-hmm. uh, sim to real. And so controls uh, traditionally has, has, uh, has worried about the ability to make uh, guarantees or certifications of performance. And so you'll find a lot of idealized assumptions, but under those idealized assumptions, then there can be guarantees. And then ultimately, you know, that'll go to simulation where you now simulate a system that doesn't quite follow the assumptions that you made. And then there's the uh, ultimate deployment. And here I would like to quote uh, a, uh, Dr. Gunter Stein, who gave a, a really amazing uh, keynote talk about 30 years ago, actually 30 plus years ago, it was called Respect the Unstable. And he said, no matter what you do and no matter how much offline testing you do and how much simulation uh, you do, when you go and deploy the controller, then he called it a leap of faith. You're really hoping that this is going to, uh, to fly, uh, sometimes literally. And, and so, yes, there's now that it's been a moving target of uh, how much can you one kind of, or how much confidence one can build over simulation. Uh, and, and that moving target, you know, depending on the nature of the applications, if it's safety critical, uh, still it's going to be an element of a leap of faith, but you can get at least closer and closer and closer with uh, modern simulation capabilities to try mm-hmm. to deploy, you know, very, uh, uh, or, or, or try to emulate very realistic scenarios. But then there's always what they call the corner cases, and that's the when when different elements come together uh, to form a surprise, and those can actually lead to tragic consequences uh, with safety critical control systems. Mm-hmm. That's excellent point. So before going into detail with that, uh, if you can tell us about first of all, congratulations for your new appointment, and mm-hmm. uh, if you can tell us about the journey uh, you have been doing in your labs. And now you move to uh, again uh, to your new position. If you can tell us about that, what mm-hmm. you're doing, what your research interest, what are the challenges you're trying to tackle in your research group? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I've I've been a university professor since 1989, actually, and I spent the first 25 uh, years of my career in the U.S., uh, where I was born and raised. 
and uh, at different uh, institutions. And then uh, the opportunity came to join King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, KAUST. And there it was very intriguing. At the time, uh, KAUST was just five years old. It's a startup university. And uh, while academic life in the US has its excitement, uh, you, this was a very, very different experience. Okay, so it wasn't a matter of finding something better. It was more of a trajectory to find something different. And, and the impact that, that one individual can have at a young and small university can be tremendous. And so one's presence can really change what the university is going to look like 5, 10, 20 years down the road. And that, that really excited me. And also that university has, has uh, abundant resources and it's an opportunity to, to really become more uh, ambitious. And moving to Calstead got a chance to uh, expand into doing, uh, developing a robotics lab. And it was the uh, first lab there. And that lab is, is continuing now and there's more robotics faculty who have joined Calst since then. Uh, but as I mentioned, one can become very kind of uh, more exploratory in, in the research directions they'd like to do because it's detached from the, the uh, kind of funding constraints uh, that, that are present in the U.S. academic system. Mm -hmm. So after about seven years at KAUST, uh, this opportunity came up to join the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And my um, official title is, um, is the Department Head of Industrial and Enterprise Systems Engineering. And so it's an administrative position. Yes, there still will be research activities going on and we're in the process of building a lab uh, here as, as well and, and building a group. You know, as time goes on, uh, you know, you, one's sense of satisfaction in their career shifts from individual achievement to say group achievements to helping others achieve. And, and that's the path to an administrative position. And I get a sense of satisfaction now if I can do some things that will help my colleagues and their groups uh, reach their own achievements. And that was the attraction in, in coming here. Uh, now, University of Illinois has a grand tradition. In fact, if I go back to my very first academic position in 1989 at the University of Minnesota, in fact, my very first invited lecture was here at the University of Illinois in, in the uh, Coordinated Sciences Lab. And so there's many, many people working in controls and robotics. So aside from just the, uh, the industrial and systems engineering position, it's just a very exciting place to be uh, with so many uh, really interesting colleagues to talk to. So going back to your, your, your really uh, interesting part about the control, mm -hmm. how do you see the control design when it comes to from classical control to modern control and inspiration to come up with certain algorithm, for example? We can tell us about what could be favorite algorithm and what could be still something still maybe we have to work on when it comes to designing controller for robotics or which more harder to solve robotics as well for highly nonlinear system. So if you can tell us about the process here. Mm -hmm. And so you'll, uh, if you talk about my favorite controllers or, or I think that you can look at an evolution of how of, of controls in that. So you're, Anyone's favorite has to be just the simplest, and it's a PID control. And uh, mm -hmm. because it's so widely deployed and, and so ubiquitous and so successful. And uh, now what's happened to controls over the years is that, as I mentioned, we'd like to get certification. So we would make certain assumptions or strong assumptions on systems. And also once we made these assumptions, then we had tools that could uh, design controllers for specific types of systems. Although in reality, uh, the, the, uh, the, the real system is different from the one that we assumed, and then there, we're back to the leap of faith. 
Now what's happening lately is controls is just becoming a lot more computational. And so there's another increasingly deployed uh, type of control that's called model predictive control, which is relying on the ability to solve real-time optimizations uh, in, in an active uh, real-time study. And so um, the history of model predictive control was that it was uh, coming out of the coming out of controls in the, the chemical processes industry because the time scales at the time were uh, at that those days uh, were of the sort where you could do real-time optimization because real time could have meant minutes or even hours. But now for flight control, of course, real time is much more aggressive. And uh, but now computational capabilities have reached the point where you can do real time simulation and do many kind of uh, estimated scenarios going forward and decide what to do based on real time optimization. It's still model based, but real time optimization of, of different scenarios and then pick the best scenario. And the way uh, model predictive control works is that uh, you make a plan, implement the first part of the plan, see what happens, and then replan. And so if you want to think, you know, we'll, I'll plan out my week and see what happens on Monday and then plan out the rest of the week. So you always have this receding plan. And so you're finding that, uh, as I mentioned, I think control is moving more and more computational. And with these kind of computational resources and, and now the influence of things like uh, machine learning and deep learning, you're seeing uh, the beginnings of a shift away from assuming a particular model structure and making it just uh, very computational. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, you know, we got to keep going back to this idea of certification and, and having something that works 99% of the time for a safety critical system is not at all uh, sufficiently reliable. And so you can get there by simulation and computation, uh, but how do you certify uh, the performance of these systems? Uh, that, that's an ongoing challenge. Yeah, I think this is a really excellent point. And uh, I'd like to skew that case because we have this kind of triangle, maybe you can see from the control and uh, machine learning and modeling. And when it comes maybe physics, maybe you can extract physics and machine learning and the control. How do you see it sometimes? Because, yeah, we have this discussion before in the podcast about modeling sometimes is so hard when it comes to, yeah, finding on your system, for example. And also the physics, for example, we have to control uh, in the system and the machine learning. So how do you see this uh, parts go uh, with each other? Is there something a trade-off here or something still you don't consider fully? Mm -hmm. And so actually the control community has, has grappled with these kinds of questions uh, for decades. Yeah. Uh, so instead of calling it deep learning, it was called, uh, say, adaptive control or intelligent yeah. control. But, but you know, the similar uh, kind of issues were at the heart of it. Regarding the modeling, uh, one of the, the benefits of control is that on the one hand, it requires modeling. On the other hand, feedback itself means that the modeling is not critical. Okay, so that's the whole point of the, the feedback mechanism. There's a difference between making a model and then making a plan and then going home versus implementing that plan and then replanning and replanning and replanning based on the actuality of what's happening. And in fact, that's the very oldest uh, motivation for control is that, yes, we can make models, but these models are uncertain. And so the, uh, there, there is both a tension, but also a complementarity in that the feedback process itself means that modeling errors are not as sensitive as they would have been otherwise. 
but then, as I mentioned, you know, methodologies tended to assume a particular structure. And now when you get into things like soft robotics and deformable systems and, and where it's really the kind of assumptions you need to make to make it fit the uh, presumed structure are too extreme. And uh, but we, when we felt constrained, but I need the structure to be able to design controllers. And that's where the, the uh, new computational and simulation-based control design has become liberating. Uh, but even, even uh, yeah, so, so modeling, there's modeling for the sake of control, but then there's modeling for the sake of, uh, say, verification and validation. And perhaps you can simulate, a, say, a soft robotic system, just to continue with that example, but to extract that simulation for uh, in the form where it could be used for control design remains uh, very difficult. And there's been decades of work on, on distributed parameter control and control of PDEs. Uh, and, and so, you know, this has gone on. And, and I think the, whether it's PDEs or ODEs or nonlinear systems, as I said, the, the, uh, there's a shift towards uh, computational based uh, uh, approaches. Yeah. One thing that I worked on uh, very early on actually was, was something that was kind of in the middle ground of what we're, we're talking about. Uh, so as I mentioned, they're, they're, we like to have certain types of models because that's where we have tools. Mm -hmm. And so one of the uh, very common models is a, say, a linear model. And, but we know that all systems are nonlinear. And one uh, very traditional method of nonlinear control design is you pretend like it's linear, design a controller, say in, in a, uh, uh, for flight control, assume mm -hmm. a model in, or assume a particular point in the, in the flight envelope, say at a at particular altitude or air uh, or dynamic pressure or, or speed and design a controller, then assume another part in the flight envelope, design a controller, assume another part in the flight envelope, design a controller. And now you have this quilt of many controllers and then you tie them all together as the system moves throughout the flight envelope. So that's called gain scheduling. And, and in fact, there is a time where everything that flies or swims was used with gain scheduling. And so it shows how much can be done with control and feedback and that you're assuming linear models and none of them are correct, but by patching them together in a, in a clever way, uh, then you can actually get uh, effective uh, deployed controllers. And, and then the analysis of game schedule systems followed actually the industry deployment. The industry, uh, applications were leading the way there. It was working and then, there, and then came a theory and then method and a more formal methodologies for designing game schedule controllers. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm curious to ask you in that case, is it something you have witnessed for game schedule, for example, for high number system didn't work out for yeah the longest approach because yeah and even soft robotics we have the tendency to linearize although nonlinear is so interesting and could be beneficial to replace the control itself mm -hmm. uh, you know there's there's you know there's only a, a limit to how much the, the linearization can can do so there's there there's some things that are just can't be linearized uh, so for example if you have hard uh, constraints uh, bounds, saturations. Uh, there's, uh, for example, there's a limited torque that the robot can can uh, can use on its motors. Uh, those kind of hard nonlinearities, gain scheduling is not well suited for them. When you try to linearize, it's you get this binary. Either it's there or suddenly it's gone. Uh, you don't have these kind of smooth uh, transitions. And in the case of soft robotics, and it's not my field, so this is really conjecture on my part, but the, uh, you know, the, the, the high dimensionality and also phenomena such as the internal dissipation 
have historically been very difficult uh, to model, I would say. And, and so in internal frictions, uh, for example, in, in, in uh, distributed parameter systems have always been difficult. So in friction itself and then uh, internal friction is also difficult. And, and so, yeah, it's it's unclear that that's the linearization yeah. approaches uh, could be that you linearize the whole problem away and then get a very optimistic view of, uh, of capabilities that aren't really there. And more recently, uh, I'd say I've been interested in, in multi-agent systems and multi-robot systems in particular. And so the interest there is that, uh, you know, we've all been kind of fascinated uh, with, uh, say, bio-inspirations of, of different types of swarm behaviors or, or collective behaviors uh, where you see groups of, say, animals doing uh, tasks that either they can do more efficiently as a group or that no one individual could do uh, as an individual. And now there's been a lot of uh, engineering interest in that and from the controls community as well. Uh, you can think of, say, uh, there's an area called human swarm interaction. And so uh, when, when there is remote piloting of vehicles, a typical mm -hmm. scenario was that you would, might have many pilots for one vehicle. Uh, but now if you want to reverse those numbers and have one pilot for many vehicles, mm -hmm. uh, then uh, say a, you can think of, for example, a, a coach and players. And so a coach in, can yell out instructions to their players, but the players have to execute them individually. So you don't have a coach like a, a puppeteer controlling everything that, that the players do, but rather there can be some plans in place and the coach can yell out these plans, but the players have to make decisions on their own as, as a group. And so we wanna reverse these numbers and say have one pilot for many vehicles. And that's, uh, that's uh, one of the challenges of, of multi-robot systems of, of each trying to have them work effectively as a collective uh, where they're individuals in a team. And there's a big difference between distributed decision-making and, uh, and centralized decision-making. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find uh, examples in nature. Uh, you can find examples in, in human uh, teams as well. Uh, there's one example you find, uh, say a video online uh, in American baseball where three uh, professional baseball players come together to catch a ball and then the ball drops right in the middle. Mm -hmm. And if any of them were alone, they would have caught the ball. But as a team, they failed because there was a miscoordination. Uh, uh, and that wouldn't have happened if you had the coach controlling them all. Uh, but somehow you can get these kind of miscues uh, happening in, in team decision scenarios. You can see it in nature. Uh, you, we know about ants and following uh, pheromone paths. Well, then there's this death spiral that sometimes they do where they're following a path that's in a circle and then they'll just continue to follow this path uh, perpetually. And so despite all the amazing things and examples of, of what ants can do as, as distributed teams, they, they have these, uh, these kinds of uh, vulnerabilities as well. So uh, team decision-making and distributed decision-making has become really a, a main uh, research direction for me in, in recent years. And yeah. that led me to becoming interested in, in actually game theory, which is about uh, modeling and designing uh, distributed decision-making. Uh. And maybe what could be still challenging when it comes to your interest in, for this research line, for example, what could be still something still hard to understand or so challenging for you? Mm -hmm. 
So we've worked on algorithms to say, if I want to program a, a, a several mobile robots to go and explore an area or to do patrolling for uh, in, intruder detection, uh, there are algorithms out there to try to do, uh, say, getting a group of robots to jointly manipulate, say, collective transport, where they pick up an object and, and drop it off uh, as a team where it's too heavy for any individual uh, a robot. So all of those, in, in those settings, it's distributed decision making, but we program the robot and we program the, the rules that they're going to use to interact with each other so that collectively they, uh, they, they work uh, effectively together. Now, uh, one of the bigger challenges is say in human swarm uh, robot interaction where you have one of the decision makers, several decision makers are robots, but one of the decision makers are more are humans and we can't program the humans on how they're going to uh, behave. And so how do you design a swarm so that it works effectively with a human where you can't program that human uh, to, to do uh, things in a certain way? A very nice example would be, for example, in, uh, in uh, platooning on, on highways. So it's one thing to design control algorithms uh, so that uh, say you have a series of trucks and they're each following each other at a very high speed and that's the platooning uh, problem. And then they can benefit from um, energy savings uh, from uh, that kind of drafting one, one truck behind another. But now autonomous vehicles on highways have to interact with human drivers. And the uncertainty that's brought in by the human drivers is something that they need to, uh, to needs to be programmed into the, to the swarm. And so human swarm interaction, I think, is very challenging still. And what do you model in the human? And, and then how do you take care of uh, uncertainties in, in, in human behavior? That's very interesting, yeah. Maybe in this context, what's something you think we have to focus on uh, when it comes to the community for robotics, for example? Well, yeah, what's something you still think, think have the, um, it's not considered, we have to give much attention when it comes to this research challenges here. Mm -hmm. So there's something that's actually at the intersection of, uh, of human uh, robot interaction and, uh, and controls itself. And so I mentioned that that's one of the benefits of feedback is its ability to cope with uncertainty. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so now I think one of the most uh, kind of challenging questions is controlling systems that have humans in it. So I, I, I want to avoid the term like control of humans uh, for, for the obvious reasons. Uh, uh, but what, what system has, brings more uncertainty than say human behaviors? And, and unlike, unlike say physical systems, you know, we talked about modeling, uh, even the models can be complicated, whether it's soft robotics or, or flight dynamics, you can do controlled repeated experiments. Mm -hmm. And so if I do an experiment uh, today and do it the same experiment tomorrow, try to control the surroundings, I'm going to get the same results. Uh, but that's not going to be the case in, in taking data about humans. Uh, a human behaviors may vary from human to human. Human behaviors may vary over time for the, the same human. Uh, human behaviors may vary based on what their perception is of what's going on, uh, what they think is the intent of the one who's taking the, the data. Uh, you know, uh, you may have seen, for example, in, in boxing matches, uh, at, they're spending you know, half an hour you know, beating each other's brains out. And at the end of the match, they hug, okay, <laughs> because they, they understand the intent of the 
other in general. And, and so, uh, but if someone even just bumps into someone else that might result in a violent situation outside of the, the ring. And so even this kind of internal uh, kind of in perceptions of others can also change the type of data that's, that's being uh, collected. Of why is this person taking my data? Okay. Mm -hmm. And so you, so you don't have the option of doing repeated controlled experiments uh, that brings in a lot of uncertainty. And yet we have to design these systems that have a human machine interaction. And so I think that's a very fascinating area. It's related to classical controls and bringing in uncertainty. It's related to human swarm interaction as well, but bringing in human in the loop. And, and there, it's receiving a lot of attention. I think there's, there's still a long way to go. That's interesting. Maybe I'm just asking you in that case about, um, because in one of the episodes that August say that we have to design, for example, software to more predictive and less depending on the feedback. So I don't know how do you see that if we have designed system that more predictive and less depending on the feedback. Do you agree with that? Or we have to, yeah, I don't know what you saw about that. I mean, if you can get away with it, fine. Uh, that's a, really a statement about how much uncertainty is there in the system. And so, yeah, I can be predictive if I'm in an environment that admits prediction. Uh, but if there's a lot of uncertainty, then that's also going to put a, a limit on how predictive one can be. And that then again motivates feedback because we're going to plan and replan when I make a prediction and things really don't go according to plan. Now we can take actions that are conservative that, that uh, say consider many possible evolving scenarios. And then you take an action that tries to limit or hedge what's the worst that can happen or what's un, uh, or limit what, what can happen in, a, in say an, an unlikely uh, situation. Uh, there are different ways to measure what's the worst that can happen. And, uh, and so that's also another possibility and to bring in uncertainty into planning. So uncertainty and planning versus uh, prediction. But even with prediction and, and, uh, and an example that's used, uh, say that we face in day-to-day -day life, uh, say when we're just driving on a road, uh, what's our prediction about what the person in the, who else, uh, another driver is going to do, say with traffic that's incoming traffic. So we're on a two-way road, I'm going this way, uh, some other drivers coming towards, uh, coming in the opposite direction. What do you use for prediction there? And if it's purely safety, well, then you would never get on the road because that driver can do many things and just cross the lane and then result in a, in a tragic accident. Uh, if you're completely optimistic, then that's going to be not sufficiently uh, cautious for, for certain actions that, that can happen. And so figuring out where to draw the line, especially with human-robot interaction or prediction in general, is just how pessimistic do you want to be? Uh, because the more pessimistic you are, the more cautious you'll be, but then the more performance you'll lose uh, as a result. And where to draw that line, I think, is a very, uh, very difficult one. Really like this expression, yeah, and abstraction as well. So, yeah, but maybe a quick question here about the control design, for example, the computation um, and selecting maybe the interesting point for prediction, or I don't know, depending on scenario. For example, sometimes we can use model order reduction. I don't know how do you see that to reduce the computation power and achieving intelligent controller and taking account that you capture the interesting features or mm -hmm. pattern in your system that you maybe protect, uh, how, how you manage to do that mm -hmm. in a low computational power? 
so you know the that's you know what's considered lo, uh, kind of limited computational power is also a moving target and what it is today isn't what it was a decade ago and not what it'll be a, a decade from now yeah. and so the the model reduction has largely been motivated uh, from uh, as we mentioned that the need to have uh, to be able to do design and simulation or even real-time uh, uh, computations uh, to kind of fit whatever power is available at, the, at that moment. Uh, now with, with the feedback uh, effect, one of the effects of feedback is as we said, that it can, it mitigates the effects of uncertainty. So I can make a low order model, a simplified model, and I can use that for design. I can use that for prediction, knowing that I'm going to, to put in a uh, replan and feedback. And so it'll going to work in the real system. A uh, very kind of simple example, and again, you know, looking at uh, cars and something we do every day. I mean, nobody's solving a CFD in their head about the uh, the air and, and vehicle interaction and the road tire interaction and, and making that kind of predictive model. And although there are sophisticated uh, fluid dynamics tools to do that, what's our model is that when I press the gas, it speeds up, and when I press the brakes, it slows down which is not a good model for prediction. It's a good model for computation and real-time computation, but because we use that in a feedback way and perpetually adjusting, uh, you can imagine if I just used that model to design, a, to, to, pat, to plan the path of a vehicle, it would be disastrous. Uh, but if because we're doing it in feedback, then it, it uh, reduces the effect of these kinds of simplifying approximations. And so wherever the boundary is, there will always be this opportunity for using simplified models uh, for either prediction or design because it's being implemented in a feedback uh, scenario. Yeah, that's also the point, yeah. So maybe I'm just asking, do you have any situation, for example, when you design something for modeling and control and when you applied for robots was really counterintuitive, was surprising, wasn't expected to have the same result as you expected in this year, for example, you designed? Do you have any similar scenario mm. like that happen to you? Well, you know, I will uh, talk again at this uh, robotics competition that our team entered. And it's not so much the outcome was surprising. It's just when you get to a robotics competi uh, competition, you can do all of the testing and planning and trials you want. But then when you get in the arena, uh, it's like, I don't know if you remember the Bermuda Triangle. Just yeah. bad, bad things happen as some for some reason when you press go and now is it really going to work when it needs to work at that moment that it needs to work and that's when you find things that are supposed to go down go up and then uh, somehow when it was just working in the parking lot five minutes uh, ago. Uh, that's not so much an answer to your question but it's just a uh, a, maybe it is a, a, a statement of, of for for either safety critical controls and at the very serious end or robotics competi competitions at the, at the less serious end uh, that the kind of testing and, and offline testing, simulation testing, real-time testing really, really dominates. And it's back to that leap of faith and that you can do a lots and lots and lots of testing, but when it's uh, go time, it's, it's not clear what's going to happen. Yeah. So since what goes to the end, uh... I just want to ask you this question because I think that's something we ask lots in stuff robotics. How we can design a control that can't destroy the natural dynamics of the soft robot? And do you think that we can um, use geometric and natural nonlinearities to replace the controller? From your, yeah, from the other side, do you think that's something um, 
how do you see this kind of statement or approaches to replace the controller with mm -hmm. geometric energy and linear by achieving inherent control in the system naturally? Actually, this is something that's been uh, explored uh, over the years. Yeah. And sometimes people call it physical intelligence, uh, where you where you have now an interplay, and there's also a field that we have someone in my and in, in my department who works on this is design for control. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm going to design a system, I would like it so that its physics is amenable to what it's trying to do with controls. I'm sure you've seen this video of a passive device walking downhill. Uh, because yeah. of just the way it was designed. And so it's not using any energy, just external mm -hmm. gravity uh, to walk. I'm sure you've seen this video of a dead fish swimming uh, in, in the current. And, and, and so uh, I think knowing where, where, where controls comes in in that so that it's designed for controls and not just design and not just controls is controls can offer insights into what makes some systems easier, hard to control. And, uh, and so that can be used as a rough guide for design of if I design it in a certain way or if I place a sensor in a certain place, it's going to make the control problem a lot easier or a lot harder. And you can use that, those kinds of insights to say, no, I should design it in a certain, uh, and say if I was able to get a, a controllability score, not controllability in the way that it's taught, uh, as, as usual, but rather controllability in the sense of, will this be an easy system to control or will it be sensitive to uncertainties? And if I can get that kind of controllability sensitivity score, that can be complemented with a, a design tools so that actually you want to exploit the, the natural physics of the system in a certain way to do, uh, uh, mm -hmm. to make sure that it's aligned with the control objective. That's really thoughtful point. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate this answer, yeah. And uh, yeah, maybe because we close it and, and I'm just asking what is your aspiration for your research? Because yeah, for controller maybe design and so your idea, yeah. Mm -hmm. What could be aspiration for you in terms of research? So, you know, I've been talking about control in a very traditional way. And uh, actually my viewpoint of control doesn't align with this traditions. And, mm -hmm. and, and you know, so the way I think about control is, is decision-making in dynamic and uncertain environments. And so that could be making a wheel spin at a certain speed, okay? And that's how people typically think of uh, controls, at least people who are not in, the, in, in controls, think of it as say servo mechanisms. Uh, but, but if you think in terms of decision-making in dynamic and uncertain environments, then it can be about uh, manufacturing or smart cities or transportation or energy systems, bringing in humans, uh, humans interacting with machines. At that level, uh, these are what they have in common is a bit of modeling and a bit of computation and a lot of uncertainty and feedback. And, and feedback is the great uh, enabler. And so, you know, I think that bringing controls at a uh, at, at kind of a broader level of beyond the the servo mechanism viewpoint uh, is 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 uh, kind of a main kind of interest of mine. And and you're seeing this actually. It's it comes and goes over the uh, the years. Uh, they, the lab that I was in in graduate school actually changed its name to the Laboratory for Information Decision Systems. And if, if the controls is not in the title, but it's the controls is all over that, the, that problem of I have information and I need to make uh, decisions. 
And, and so my, what I'd like to see uh, more of is, is the role of controls in, in say, societal uh, grand challenges. And as I said, this is an emerging uh, discussion, but whether it's uh, resource management or uh, you know, controls for robotics, it's really a, a wide uh, spectrum. And, and that's how I, I see controls. Uh, these days, uh, the, the, uh, you know, if I said decision-making in dynamic and uncertain environments, you know, the, the takeaway is, is going to be one of like AI and machine learning, and, and that's fine. Uh, but I, one of the issues that controls types have is that we see everything as a control problem, and, and I'm, I'm guilty of that as well. Yeah, thank you for hearing that. Yeah, I may ask you, do you think maybe um, what could be something uh, you can advise a student whom you're interested in controller uh, system or game theory? What could be advice you can give them to be involved in this domain? Yeah, so I think, you know, if I wanted to work in controls is to have a, to think about controls in, a, in the broader sense that I just uh, outlined of uh, decision-making in dynamic and uncertain environments. And you'll find that you know there's a lot of, of uh, synonyms for controls where controls is not mentioned, and mm -hmm. so it might be smart, smart whatever, or it might be active or intelligent. So all of these reflect that there's a control system, uh, you know, behind the curtain. And uh, one one thing that uh, a uh, another very interesting uh, lecture that you can look up online by Carl S. from on on controls, it, you know, controls is a very enabling concept, but usually people don't talk about it. And so when, when it works, it's self-driving and when it crashes, it's the control system's fault. And, and so recognizing that controls is, is enabling in so many domains, I think if you wanted to work in that area, just think about, uh, you know, it, it have the, the kind of the breadth of vision that it, that it doesn't have to be a servo mechanism or control of a particular physical yeah. device. Controls is, is everywhere. In terms of getting a career, uh, in, in, in controls or say in, or doing a, say a PhD in controls. Uh, so here, let me pause. Uh, I'm actually, I have, uh, I think that the, the field is, has really changed, not just the field academia has changed for the worse badly in the last 20 years. What? I really feel sorry for people coming into the field now uh, when I graduated, okay, I'm going to now sound like the, the old timers, like when I was a kid, okay, but when I was a kid, I had two papers submitted out of my PhD, and that was typical, assistant professor packages, and they look like what tenure packages used to look like, of, you know, I've, I've participated in these proposals, and I have this many papers, and, and uh, what one very kind of uh, leading figure in control said is that, uh, you know, if you're, if you're writing more, you're reading less. And I think that that's what's happened now is this, this expectation to, to publish and produce and produce and produce has, has led to reading less. And, and it's not an enjoyable uh, place to be where, where there's just so much happening. Yes, there's a lot of excitement happening, but, but not, not, not proportional to the amount of, of kind of publications that are coming out and, and how we're driven by metrics and, and, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's very discouraging and I don't know how to kind of turn back uh, the, yeah. The, yeah. the culture to yeah. major where, where it was more of a kind of a, a better paced uh, scholarship and the Nobel laureate saying just don't pay attention to that and follow your passion and 
and you know, you can say that now, but you're not in my position and, and my, not my position, but say as someone, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, just starting out in the field, the pressures are tremendous. Uh, and, and yes, it's possible to succeed without kind of conforming to that culture, uh, but it's becoming increasingly difficult. And so with my own group, uh, I would say that, that you know, they, my group appreciates it, that, you know, we don't operate in that way. On the one hand, on the other hand, they tell me, listen, when we graduate, we're going to be competing with people who have end papers and no one's going to stop to say, yes, they have fewer, but, but uh, you know, they're, they're deeper because they don't even get to the point of getting that conversation. Their CVs are just dismissed. Uh, and so we need to, I need to be mindful that, that graduates from my group are going to be entering that and competing in that culture. Uh, which is, yeah. uh, like I said, it's, it's I think that's something uh, very uh, admirable. But I know it will be hard. I can I can assume from the current culture. Let me ask you, what does it take that we can, yeah, back to twenty years, uh, as you say, the same culture you have, different culture, appreciate more understanding, and know you don't be judged how many papers you have. Um, yeah, I I know I have respect, but uh, I'm against the number of papers. I think it's the quality. And uh, because it's insane number of papers. Uh, well, well it's it, it insane number of papers. So people have uh, one per week or, 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 you know, this, this article that I, I mentioned, you know, just, you know, really uh, described that very well. I can send you a link to that discussion. Mm -hmm. But now what will it take? It'll take people who are in influential positions to stop being hypocrites. To be, to be very blunt and so if i'm saying i don't care about numbers and if if say even i'm in this position as a department head uh if if someone if a candidate comes to the department in the area of controls i'm pretty convinced that i'll i'll uh, assess that that file or that cv based on the actual kind of scholarly contribution but suppose they're in an area that's tangential to mine well then i just go to google scholar and look at an h index and, and look at numbers uh, because I'm not able to, to make that more qualitative assessment. So I think step one is for, as I said, people who are in a position of, of decisions and influence to, to practice what they preach. Because I think if you ask any of anyone, they say, no, it's not about numbers, but then we'll, we'll tout numbers and, and reward numbers. And, and, mm -hmm. and so I think, I think, also, Jeff, I think that's something also we speak about the H index. I think it's unfair to compete people with different H index because it's number of application, number of citation. Mm -hmm. And you can gain that number each index. So it's, it's really it's, not. There's so many. There's so many flaws with it, and they've been pointed out of whether you can game it or whether it's a measure of popularity of an area. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, at the end of the day, you, you know, a, again, with people in influence, there, this is brought in for 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 a human to make a qualitative assessment. Otherwise, we can all be replaced by spreadsheets. And may I ask you, what is maybe the most important quality you have to maintain? The most important quality. Determination, for sure, for sure, because there's going to be uh, letdowns all along the way, and not just in, in graduate school, throughout one's career, there's going to be, uh, you know, times where things didn't go your way, and whether it's in the lab of a result, an experiment that went awry, or experiment went great, but the publication decision didn't go well, or the proposal decision didn't go well, it's going to be rejection after rejection, and, and frustration, and just determination would be the most uh, yeah. Yeah. Important. Right. So I'll, I'll quote an old uh, actor from my parents' generation, mm -hmm. and this is something that I say to, to potential candidates in my research group, and uh, 
they say like, why do you want to get a PhD? And what this actor said is he, that he would ask young uh, aspiring uh, actors, why do you want to go into acting? And if they say, because I want to, he said, that's the wrong answer. It is because I have to, it's just part of my life's mission. Okay. And that, and that's what it takes, that kind of determination. It's, it's not a cost benefit analysis. And, mm. and, uh, and, and you would rather it's that this is something that I'm so passionate about. It's something that I have to do. And I'm not really thinking that clearly about yeah. what are the consequences yeah. because I just have to do it. And I think with, with you know, kind of determination, uh, that's what's gonna get you through yeah. the, the, the dark yeah. periods that happen throughout one's career as a researcher. I can feel you are so passionate. And I think you have to start a podcast for control because I think you have a lot to say. I think, yeah, you need more hours to, I think, yeah, you have to just consider that, yeah. And um, may I ask you, do you think ego is important for you? Ego is important for you? I think if you want to, to uh, equate ego and drive and determination, uh, I think that's, if ego can help me achieve uh, then, then that's positive. If I'm trying to get achievements to feed my ego, then mm -hmm. that's, <laughs> that, that's, you know, you can, there's a relationship there, but there's, you know, you have to get the sign right. And yeah. then the sign error can, can lead to, uh, you know, it's about, it's about uh, driving to, for uh, achievement in, in the field, but not so much about getting recognition, however I can. And because that can feed ego as well and, and, and lead to questionable practices. In, in research and publications and, and uh, yeah yeah absolutely yeah and may I ask you what's the best advice was given to you and was the life changing uh, so the advice in, in technical terms it was given to me by my uh, collaborator and postdoc advisor uh, Munzer Dahli at MIT he said yeah. uh, so the technical phrase was single input single output linear <laughs> okay so what does that mean yeah. the, the the broader interpretation is that uh, you know, just you're trying to understand something, strip away all of the potential complications and focus on the very simplest setting to the point that you think that the problem is actually trivial and it's not trivial. And so now when you break that and, and get, a, get an achievement there, then you can start adding in the complicating layers, but just throw everything away until it's almost ridiculously simple, but it's not. The essence is still there and work on just the, uh, the essence. That's really valuable. I can resonate with that valuable advice. Yeah. And yeah, we close this end. And I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to share with the robotics community. Any final words you'd like to say? I just just uh, listen to this podcast with <laughs> with uh, Marwa. And uh, yeah, <laughs> thanks for the invitation. Thank um, you. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure participating. Yeah. And such an honor to have you. Thanks so much again for joining. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much.